Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the going viral edition. I'm your host and journal editorial writer, Sarah O'Donnell. It's January 9th, and we're at the tail end of a week in Alberta that's been full of stories about influenza, multi-venue fights over the province's controversial new labor laws, and somewhat unexpectedly, the child welfare system. Joining me to sift through these issues are Press Gallery stalwart Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Journal Health reporter Keith Gerine. Hello. And Provincial Affairs reporter Karen Cleese. Aloha. Given that another one of our Press Gallery regulars, Graham Thompson, is sick today, it seems appropriate to start talking about the germs and how Alberta's flu frenzy has evolved through the week. Keith, as health reporter, you've been on the influenza beat. Why is Alberta gripped with talk about flu right now? Yeah, well, it's... it's that you call it the flu frenzy because that's kind of what's going on right now. Um, it started actually back sort of around Christmas time. Um, and that's a, that's the time when a lot of the stories started emerging about how serious uh, the H1N1 uh, virus was spreading around Alberta. Um, the unique thing about that virus is that it tends to hit younger adults more seriously than seniors. And we've seen a lot of serious cases hit the hospitals. So since that time, since those stories have hit the news, obviously there's been a lot of interest from people going to get their vaccine. Um, and it increased this week because um, we're starting to hear that we might be running out of vaccine. In fact, we might be running out of it as of this week, as of Friday. So that has created some long lineups at public health clinics. People are going to pharmacies and not finding a lot there. Doctor's offices are running out. Uh, and the province has confirmed that yes, in fact, if you don't get a flu shot by the end of this week, you might be out of luck. So up until yesterday, the flu strain that health officials seemed most concerned about, as you said, was H1N1, one of the three strains that's in the shot. But then suddenly yesterday, health officials were talking about a different kind of flu. Can you tell us why? Yeah, this was a big surprise to everyone. So this new kind of flu is called H5N1, more commonly known as avian or bird flu. It's really only been seen in 15 countries around the world up until this point, um, mostly in Asia. And guess what? Alberta is now home to North America's first ever case of this kind of flu. Um, it was uh, uh, a woman, we believe, who traveled to China in December, came back to Alberta, uh, and died on January 3rd of this very, very rare kind of virus. It's a strange distinction, you know. I mean, at, at one very dark level, I suppose it's a mark of how international and cosmopolitan this province is that, oh yes, we have North America's first ever fatality from avian influenza. But I mean, it really was shocking because this is not a, a flu bug that's easily transmitted from person to person. And health officials still don't have a clear explanation of how this Alberta woman came to contract this fatal flu. Apparently, when she was in Beijing, she didn't visit a chicken farm. She wasn't in a live poultry market, as far as her family's been able to say. Uh, and so it is disconcerting because even though health officials keep saying that there's a very poor transmission human to human from this flu, the fact that we have the first fatality in North America, uh, I mean, it really was shocking. And it's not just Alberta health officials who are keeping track of this. Is that is that right? Tell me how many people are paying attention to this. This is an international story. As a just a, a side note, um, I was interviewed yesterday by the British Broadcasting Corporation, one of their radio stations, um, and they they noticed it. Uh, Chinese authorities are going to be all over this. The World Health Organization is interested because this is the first time it's shown up in North America, and they want to know how it started. Health officials have definitely said that 
most of us have no reason to be worried about this new strain of avian flu that that came over with this one woman. So are they saying that same thing about H1N1? No, H1N1 is far more contagious. It's it's easy to transmit from human to human. Um, H5N1 is, is not. So the big concern for most Albertans should actually still be the H1N1. Uh, and if you can get a vaccine, that is your best protection against it. This has been a very interesting health story to me because we've heard all for months Alberta health officials saying we want people to get their vaccines. Um, then just last Friday, the health minister Fred Horn said he wanted all Albertans to go get vaccinated. And then suddenly there's long lineup, long lineups at the clinics and there's shortages. So what's going on here? Why would they say everyone should go get their flu shot when they don't have enough shots for everybody? Well, that's a fascinatingly good question because, you know, afterwards everybody said, oh, we didn't want to create a panic. We didn't want to create a frenzy. But if you have a press conference and say, everybody get your flu shot, and then you don't have enough clinics open and you don't have enough vaccine on hand, you are naturally going to create a situation where people feel worried. Now, you know, not everybody is as earnest and sober-sided. Keith and I are such good little citizens. We went out and got vaccinated in October and November when you were supposed to. But, you know, people are busy. People, you know, in the the run-up to Christmas, a lot of people uh, didn't get vaccinated. And so when the province says, when the province says people are dying, go get vaccinated. And then it becomes apparent that they never had enough vaccine on hand to even vaccinate uh, a third of the province. You know, I I think they have created uh, more problems for themselves and and for the general public. The other thing that's really bizarre, uh, last week uh, at the same press conference, uh, Fred Horn, the health minister, was sounding the alarm that he wanted all health, uh, frontline health workers to be vaccinated. Uh, Today, the numbers finally came out that show a really disturbingly low level of healthcare workers at some particular hospitals. Um, The Grey Nuns, I think barely 40% of health workers at the Grey Nuns Hospital have been vaccinated against the flu. At Alberta Hospital, you know, which which deals with people who have psychiatric illnesses, I think it's fewer than one quarter of the staff have been vaccinated. And that's a residential hospital with, with a vulnerable population. So, even amongst health workers, not even 50% have been vaccinated. And that's even now with the big push. And now if we're out of vaccine, does that mean that hospital workers aren't going to be vaccinated? I mean, if if the H1N1 outbreak becomes much worse, that could be a significant problem. Well, so we've already seen a hospital fall to an H1N1 outbreak, right? Did we not see the At least Stollery? one, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Stollery and the Misericordia. The uh, Stollery had one unit that closed, right? did the Misericordia, okay. yes, that's right. I wonder right. if that has something to do, because what were the rates for the Stollery, Keith? That, they were one of the highest, right, in Edmonton? Yeah, they're up to about 64% now. Um, so I think there was considerable pressure when that outbreak occurred for staff to get vaccinated, and I ex- expect their numbers went up a lot in the last two weeks. Well, and it's hard, though, I think, to, com- to uh, impress upon Albertans the importance of being vaccinated if the healthcare workers themselves are not being vaccinated and you wonder um, why not I don't I, I well, really I mean, don't have any sense of why a healthcare worker in this province would not be vaccinated I, I was shocked Karen I interviewed Heather Smith the president of the United Nurses of Alberta late last Friday and she said to me I was gobsmacked that she's opposed to not only to mandatory vaccination but to mass vaccination she said the more health workers are vaccinated the greater the problem becomes and I almost dropped the phone I said what do you mean by that and she said well the 
more workers who are vaccinated, then the more casual people become about other uh, infection protocols like washing hands and gowning and wearing gloves. And she said the more I would hope not, considering there's a lot of other things that you don't get vaccinated for. Well, you know, for. I mean, she made a civil liberties argument that nurses shouldn't be forced to put something in their bodies that they don't want there. But she actually made an argument that vaccination itself, I mean, Smith, the head of the nurses union, told me the vaccine's only 40% effective. Well, that is not what most health experts say. They put the range more like 60 to 70%. So, you know, when you have the United Nurses of Alberta opposing this, when AUP, the union that represents a lot of other health workers, opposes mandatory vaccination, I think it sends a very disturbing signal to people. But then on top of that, if the government can't provide enough vaccine to go round once they sound the alarm, then people start to panic. So to be fair, Fred Horn has said that they're going to look at what happens with healthcare workers this year in terms of vaccinations, right? And that might change the requirement. They'll, they'll look at what they're going to do next year and if they're going to make anything mandatory or consider putting in new rules. What did they say today, Keith, about who's going to get the remaining vaccines? Because you were just at a press conference where they dealt with that question, right? Yeah, so the message right now is that if you still want a vaccine, uh, you can go to a public health clinic or a mass immunization clinic, and there should be enough supply for t- uh, Thursday and Friday. After that, they can't guarantee anything. A little bit of supply is going to be held back uh, for um Uh, children nine years of age and and under because they need two doses and so there's some worry that some children have gotten only one dose so far Um, and that that's that's the group that they're targeting at this point so for next year going forward what suggestions do we have about if we could advise the government on health policy terrifying what should be done differently i have one very practical suggestion one of the things that they did successfully this year was tell us all that we could get flu shots at pharmacies what they didn't tell us was that children under nine can't get vaccinated at pharmacies. So I didn't rush to get out to a flu clinic with my kids because I thought, oh, we can all go get it at the pharmacy only to line up after the clinics had closed during the Christmas break at, with them at the pharmacy and them saying, oh, I'm sorry, we can't vaccinate under nine. So Well, and that's a strange thing too. I asked Dr. Jerry Preddy about that on Friday and the reason you can't vaccinate, I thought maybe it's because they're worried that people are going to have an allergic reaction in the pharmacy. But what Preddy said to us is that the reason they don't vaccinate at the pharmacies is because they don't hold the health records there and they want all the childhood vaccination records to be together. Now, that just seems loopy to me. We have we have uh, net care, which should be able to give people, pharmacists, access to your medical records. We have I, computers I, I can't and the see, internet. I can't see any reason why a pharmacy shouldn't be able to vaccinate. But, you know, the problem is what seems to be the most logical answer to your question is to say, well, the province should have done more to promote vaccination clinics in October and November. But in all honesty, I'm not sure I can fault the province or Alberta Health Services. They did promote those clinics. When I went to mine in November, my daughter and I were the only people there. Oh, yeah. No, and I didn't blame, you know, I personally didn't hold the government responsible for my choice, but I didn't know. I just think if that's the rule, then advertise the heck out of it. So that's... Yeah, I think it's important to note each flu season's a little bit different to last year's uh, Um, It was a different strain that was the dominant one. It was not affecting young people quite as much. Uh, There weren't as many serious cases. And only 23% of Albertans bothered to get the flu. And no one really seemed to complain about to get get the flu shot. Sorry, yes. and no I never bothered to get the flu. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I think too... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, this this year it's more serious and they didn't have enough doses. Next year, who knows, we might be back to, again, a rate of 23% if it's not a serious year. Yeah, and they might have to look at doing clinics 
in schools and at universities. I mean, and uh, at workplaces. Yeah, and hours too, because I was speaking to someone who's got a young child yesterday, and they said that the clinics that she has access to in her part of the city, they're not open past. They close at four thirty. So how she and she was wanting to get her child vaccinated and get herself vaccinated, but they didn't have the correct hours for her. So I think I think that is a major concern yeah. for folks who work with kids. More right? evening clinics, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so s- speaking of handling things differently, let's move on to another extraordinary development. So from f- influenza to the world of child welfare, in late November, in response to a joint Edmonton Journal and Calgary Herald investigation into the deaths of children in care, the minister who at the time was in charge of the human services portfolio, Dave Hancock, he promised a roundtable to look at the really important issues raised by the series. Um, this, the series itself, I think, served as a punch in the gut to all of us when we learned that 145 children had died in care in that 14-year period. But we've been waiting since then to hear exactly what the roundtable would involve and who would be participating. Karen, can you fill us in on what happened yesterday? So yesterday, newly minted Human Services Minister Manmeet Bula released staggering new numbers that uh, that just blew everyone in the room away. He said that 741 children had died after having come into contact with the Human Services Ministry. Um, to put that number in context, uh, the government has previously reported 56 deaths. That now, was between 1999 and, and 2013. Two- right. So over that period of time, the government had reported 56 deaths, and those numbers were buried deep inside the annual reports coming out of the ministry. They contained virtually no details whatsoever. Uh, The figures yesterday are 13 times higher, so that's 741. Now, that's 596 deaths that were never noted in any annual report or any government document. That's right. So uh, just to sort of add to that number, which certainly was the the showstopper yesterday, uh, Bular also initiated what he's calling a five-point plan. Uh, They're going to have that uh, roundtable that we talked about, that you talked about in your intro here. They're going to appoint a team of professionals to look at all the recommendations. We'll talk about that in a little bit. they're, they've promised, and this is this is huge, to actually count the children who've died after coming into contact with child welfare services and to make that information public. Uh, they have pledged to um, enhance training and support for folks who work on the front lines and, and supervise those folks and to focus re- put a renewed focus on the root causes that bring kids into care. So all in all, it was an astonishing day. Paula, you were listening to Bular and I reading in the, the news release oh, yes. and looking at the spreadsheet. Technically, I know what you were thinking because I was sitting beside you and we were poking each <laughs> other and saying, oh my goodness. But can you share with our listeners what your reaction was to this announcement? What you need to remember is that when Karen first unveiled these figures, the initial figures back in November, Dave Hancock, who was the minister of the time, said that the discrepancy was not statistically significant, that this was not news, that everyone knew children died in care. And I believe he actually referred to our reportage as disgusting at one point. So or maybe the cartoon, maybe the, well, an editorial yes, cartoon, but they weren't pleased with they the were, story. They weren't. So Manmeet Bular is the new minister. He's 33 years old. Uh, this is his first major portfolio. He was formerly the Minister of Service Alberta. He stood at the podium, his voice breaking. He was near tears on a number of occasions. He said that these children were not numbers, that they were Albertans, that he, ha- he that he was committed to fixing the problem, that he believed in transparency, that he doesn't support the Child Youth and Family Enhancement Act as currently written, and that he believes in data and that making in making this information public. I mean, that to me was almost as shocking as the death toll. To have a minister stand up and say, 
this matters. We have to count every child who dies. We have to analyze the death. We have to look for patterns. We have to see what we can do to improve the child welfare system. Instead of pretending that everything is fine and that somehow it was some impertinent indignity that Karen Cleese spent four years fighting to get these records. I mean, here we had a minister of the crown. I mean, he didn't come right out and say, congratulations, Edmonton Journal, but it was the next best thing. You know, this information that came out yesterday was only released because Karen Cleese and our lawyers and and the management of the Edmonton Journal fought for four years for the release of these records. So what we won yesterday wasn't just the release, or at least the partial release of the information that we'd requested. We won a sea change in the government's attitude uh, to have a minister stand up and say, yes, it's important to keep track of how many kids die. Yes, it's important to analyze the data. Yes, it's time to reconsider the draconian privacy regulations that keep you from having any kind of intelligent conversation about public policy in this area. I mean, it was remarkable. So within those numbers, what was significant? Can you tell me a little bit about what stood out in that in that large, you know, breaking down the 741 number? Sure, sure. I'll I'll talk a little bit about what was significant about yesterday. I want to add a little bit to what Paula said and then talk about what's new. So I think I want to just add to what Paula said that the the level of transparency that Minister Manmeet promised yesterday is is radical and totally unprecedented in Alberta. Uh, Minister Bular, when he was um, services Alberta minister, he traveled to the United States to, and he studied up on data. And I think he may well be the only minister in Premier Alison Redford's cabinet who really understands what data is, the kind of power that it has, and the benefits of sharing it with people. So I want to be clear, uh, Minister Bular didn't say that he was going to start um, uh, releasing all kinds of um, extremely personal details about these children's lives. Um, There's a recognition by all parties that there are serious privacy concerns around these children. Um, But what he did say is that when you put strong data in the hands of academics, advocates, journalists, other people who know how to use data, you can really change the system. What you can do is you can build policy around strong evidence and that is that's what's significant about the announcement. I mean to have to have evidence-based social welfare policy. (laughs) I mean what a radical concept. That's right and so um, that's what's new about it. I mean to, to call this to call this a radically radical shift in the government's approach to um, transparency and data management with respect to these kids is, is not it, that, that is a p- completely apt description. Um, what's new? So this is really interesting. Our readers, journal readers, will know that we revealed that 145 children had died in care. That number seemed big at the time, and now it seems small. What did we learn yesterday? Well, we, we got more information about more children. So who are these additional children? Well, they're kids who were the, the term we generally use is receiving services. So they hadn't actually been apprehended from their parents. They were still, in some cases, living with their parents, maybe receiving a family enhancement service like a, a homemaker, maybe receiving additional supports for, um, for a mom who maybe is struggling with an addiction, uh, dealing with a domestic violence situation. Um, there are families who uh, were under investigation. So there had been a report to the, to the ministry and, and the of, social workers yeah, were in of, the process of... Yeah, a report of possible neglect or possible abuse. Right. And so then, you know, those social workers go in and they, they start to investigate. Some of those kids were in that list. I think uh, 41 were under investigation when they died. Um, 
In some cases, the investigation began after the child arrived at hospital, say, with a shaken baby situation or bruises. Um, Some of them were over 18 at the time of death. Some of them had no prior involvement, but had siblings or parents who'd been involved in the system. And I think the biggest number that we saw yesterday is the number of children who died after their file was closed, 291. And those figures, this kind of transparency is so important because if we start studying those 291 deaths where the file was closed, clearly those children were at risk. And why, why was the file closed? So we start asking that question and we start getting good answers about maybe some casework practice issues that need to be addressed, maybe some uh, resource issues that need to be addressed. Um, if 291 kids have died over the past 14 years after their files was closed, to me that, that suggests an area for further study. Yeah. And we never would have been able to even ask that question until we got that number. Right. And, and that's the thing, when you look at these numbers, all we have are the numbers. We don't yet have the complete case histories of all of these kids. So it's impossible to say if any of these deaths could have been prevented if those children had been apprehended, if more, uh, if more interventions had taken place. The other number that really jumped out to me were the 66 kids who died who either had a sibling who was involved with child welfare or a teenage parent who was involved with child welfare, which suggests that maybe that kid should have been under investigation or apprehended much earlier. Now at least we can frame the question, did some of these children die preventable deaths? I mean, if you don't even acknowledge that the deaths happen, you can't even begin to formulate the question of could something have been done to prevent them? Yeah, another number that I just found interesting was the universal number of children who have been served in that 14-year period, the 275,000 children, and that just made me realize that's a lot of kids, and that shows you how important that system is. So Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that uh, this is the first time the government has acknowledged, because Dave Hancock kept saying that fewer kids die in care than in the general population. Mamie Bullar said yesterday, and it's the first time I've heard this, that no, in fact, the death rate is higher than in the general population. Now, that in itself isn't necessarily an indictment of the child welfare system. These are kids who are vulnerable. These are kids who are at risk. That's the whole reason their families are involved in child welfare. It's probably not surprising intuitively that their death rate is higher. I I don't think that we ever set out, and I know Karen didn't set out to say, the system is a disaster, the system is killing children. The question is, do we have the best policies? And we can't know that if we don't actually track and investigate the deaths and see why kids are dying and if anything could be done to make the system better. If I can just interject there, um, let it be said for the record that I did not set out (laughs) (laughs) to say that the system is a disaster and that foster parents and caseworkers are killing children. In fact, I believe very deeply that the folks who work on the front lines of this system are heroes. And the, the questions that we asked in that series were very straightforward and simple. When a child dies, do we count them? And do we learn everything we possibly can from that child's death to prevent a similar death in the future? And the answer on both counts was no. And we're getting a whole lot closer to a yes on the first question right now. Um, and I think based on what we heard from Bular yesterday, we may find ourselves getting closer to the second question. So there's going to be this roundtable on January 28th and 29th. It sounds like hundreds of different people and groups are being invited. Um, very quickly, what can we expect from this event? Does it seem like it's going to be designed for real action or stage-managed theatrics? Keith, you've, you've probably seen your fair share of theatrics at various <laughs> government events over the years, but uh, Karen and Paula, you were in the room for that. So it tops I'm- of the waves. We're going to hear lots about 
about the child death review system. They're going to look at ways to improve the system so that we are, as I said, learning from these deaths. Number two, we're going to hear a lot about the publication ban. Minister Boulard made it very clear that he does not think that the current publication ban, which prohibits even families from naming their own children publicly, uh, that that publication ban is is correct. Um, and we're what else are we going to hear? We're going to hear... Well, I think we're going to hear some discussions also about root causes. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, will... Tops of the waves is one way of putting it. I mean, <laughs> I think... I think that Minister Bular signaled yesterday that real real change may actually be coming. I think the roundtable, though, I think the roundtable piece is political theater. I think it's a necessary, feel-good step to go through to make people feel that they're being consulted. But I don't actually think anything remarkable will come out of the roundtable. I think what is more interesting and almost lost in all of the news yesterday was Bular is appointing five subject matter experts to go through the hundreds and hundreds of previously ignored recommendations from hundreds of fatality inquiries and reports from children's advocates. We're actually going to go through the smart people's comments that we already have. Can I just explain to to our listeners what exactly that means? I don't think that folks realize that in our death review system, we have uh, special case reviews that generate recommendations. We have fatality inquiries that generate recommendations. The Child and Youth Advocate produces recommendations and reports from the ministry that produce recommendations. None of those recommendations were ever tracked. We revealed that in our series. They were never tracked and they were never monitored for implementation. So when Paula says this is an astonishing development, this appointment of these five folks to look through all of these recommendations, that's completely true. Um, it, it could transform the system just by, because he said, yeah. I don't want to see any more reviews. Yeah, I mean, Buller said we don't need a public inquiry. We don't need any more inquiries. We've had lots of inquiries. What we need is to actually do something. And so, you know, to me, the roundtable is window dressing. The real, the real action is going to be to see what we actually do to change the law and to change the system. Okay. At this point yesterday, I thought we'd be talking in depth today about the Alberta Labor Relations Board hearing that's underway right now. Um, there's just not time today. This is in regards to bills 45 and 46. This is the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees have filed a complaint of bad faith bargaining. We'll do our best to get an update on that next week because we do need to leave time for good stuff from the gallery. This is our weekly recommendation for good views or good listens or good some kind of with some kind of political connection. Keith, tell me about what you've got. Uh, it's just a it's a piece that's posted on Esquire. Uh, it's by uh, a guy named Luke O'Neill, who I hadn't heard of before, and it's called "The Year We Broke the Internet." And uh, that's a great piece. It is a very good piece. I, I'm not going to get into uh, all of the details because it covers a lot of ground. But there is a um, a discussion in there about what we sort of intended the internet to be, what we intended to use it for, and what we are actually now using it for. Cute cats, uh, among other things. Yeah. Yes. Okay, very good. So that's called The Year We Broke the Internet? That's right. Okay, thanks, Keith. I'm going to start my good stuff by saying, a time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. If you recognize that phrase, you'll know I'm talking about the political crisis that's unfolding for New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, well known for his interest uh, in pursuing the U.S. Republican presidential nomination for the next election. Paula pointed this out to me last week, and I have been, er, sorry, yesterday, and I've been eating it up ever since. It's just such a juicy political story of pettiness, retribution, and revenge. So I'm going to recommend reading the original documents that relate to, unbelievably, the snarling of a bridge between New Jersey and New York that has turned into just this major political debacle for the New Jersey governor because uh, his staff decided to use the fact that the Democratic mayor of Fort Lee didn't endorse 
this Republican governor in the last election, they decided to make some traffic problems for some retribution, and they foolishly left this paper trail. Um, yeah, as, a, as, a, <laughs> as they planned to hold the entire city of Fort Lee hostage, they discussed it all on email that people could access through access to information. It's yeah. quite it's 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 really unbelievable. I mean, we we always imagine these kinds of things happen in politics, but we usually don't get the paper trail that goes along with it. So. Perfect for the going viral edition. Exactly. And yeah. Paula, how about you? All right. So I'm not going to talk about American politics. I'm going to talk about the Economist. Every year at this time, they put out a yearbook that looks at the year ahead. The world in 2014 is this year's. And it's a great, the, the whole magazine is fantastic. It's got articles on everything from Angela Merkel to Barack Obama to the end of the Latvian currency to Shakespeare's upcoming 450th birthday. But the piece I really want to highlight in here, uh, The Economist used to be quite bullish on Canada. Uh, in For 2014, they've written an article called Uncool Canada, The Moose Loses Its Shades, which excoriates the Stephen Harper government upside oh. and down. And this is really something because The Economist is a right of center small c conservative magazine so to see them turn on harper lambasting his economic record lambasting his record on the environment lambasting his record on uh marijuana legalization they're sort of a small l libertarian magazine as well i mean they forecast dire things for the canadian economy including the bursting of the canadian housing bubble uh but mostly what's what's you know heartbreaking is they say that we're not cool anymore and they used to think we were cool i'm personally they come, devastated they should come visit if they don't think we're cool anymore that's true yeah. but uh, so that's uh it's called again uncool canada the moose loses its shades and it's in the uh economist yearbook the 2014 edition which is on newsstands now well thanks paula karen and keith for coming that's it for this edition of our press gallery. You'll find previous episodes, 19 of them, in the opinion section of the EdmontonJournal.com's website, on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud file, and on iTunes. We've got a Facebook page that we'd love it if you could like, and you can chat with us there about provincial politics. And I'd appreciate more ratings on iTunes listings too, because that'll help other people find the show and encourage the iTunes folks to give us some extra promotion. We'll be back next week, hopefully flu-free. Thanks for listening.